you're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. This episode is titled How to Become a Professional Landscaper. And I'd like to point out that that's actually quite different to being an ordinary landscaper. If there's one person who can help us understand this crucial difference, it's Matthew Lunn, who's the CEO of the Nursery and Garden Industry of WA, as well as the Executive Officer for the Landscape Industry Association of WA. He's worked for Curtin University and the Uni of WA, as well as having been a successful landscape business owner in his own right. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks, Daniel. Great to be on. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. You're originally from the UK, but you've called Australia home for some time now. How has Perth changed since you arrived in 1994? Oh gosh, I can remember getting off the plane in Perth and coming down the freeway and looking at these vast areas of buildings and new suburbs going up and palm trees and white sand and I wondered what I'd come to. How, how could anything grow here? <laughs> um, and Perth has changed remarkably since those early days in 1994. Uh, we've seen a great growth in new, new housing and a change in the landscape scene too. But straight away, the first thing was just this vastness when I came to Perth and how people gardened here. Huge change from England. Huge change from the green, the green capital of gardening in London. And that's because of the different conditions in Western Australia. Is that right? Yeah, partly. I think more, more recently, everyone's – well, not more recently. In the last sort of 20-odd years, we've become much more – realistic about how much water we were really wasting on our gardens. I remember when I first came, people were watering twice a day, seven seven days a week. The retic system was almost on all the time. Uh, and now we've got restrictions in place. And in fact, the gardens are better for that. Uh, we're not wasting not just water. We're not polluting our waterways with unnecessary minerals going and runoff uh, from fertilizers. So we're, we're being much more sustainable and we're understanding better that we should be growing gardens choosing the right plants, the right soils, etc., with what we've got, don't work against it. And I think that philosophy really has changed since, you know, 2020 almost now. We're in much more in that. So, sorry, since 2000. Um, it's a different philosophy. And you mentioned water-wise there. So before people were watering sort of twice a day, but what does that term water-wise actually mean? And how can landscape gardeners practically be more water-wise? Well, water-wise is really that you've got plants that are are sustainable. Um, they can last. Uh, you're not going to have to keep giving them steroids of water and fertilizer to keep them alive. And you know, here in West Australia, we've got one of the great floras of the world, and we just haven't been really utilizing it within our gardens. Thankfully, nurseries have developed breeds which can grow in smaller space gardens. Of course, back when I came in 1994, we had a lot of quarter acre block gardens. Uh, the traditional lemon tree and the hills hoist was always seen in there. But now as these gardens have got smaller, now we've got smaller courtyard space, we've got more shade, we're having to understand the type of plants we use. But uh, we're now starting to realise that if we want to be sustainable, we use what we term as a, a water-wise plant, a plant that can sustain the climate, the soils that we have here. Uh, we need to use those that are adapted to the to our environment. And we've got, as I said, one of the great floras of the world. Let's Let's use it. All right. It's just that old chestnut of plant the right plant in the right place. Absolutely. Spot on, Daniel. And that just keeps coming up in this podcast. Yeah, and, and, and it always will do. And I think it's because probably back in the 90s and certainly Perth has seen 
a change in, uh, there was only 800,000 people lived in Perth when I first came here or Western Australia. And those that came into Perth or Western Australia were perhaps from Europe and had that English style, almost approach garden, uh, box hedges, plants that needed to drink water. Uh, whereas now we're, we're educating, we're educating those who have come from other countries that there are other ways to, to garden. And uh, Perth has its own gardening climate, so we need to work, work with it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'd like to talk a little bit more about some of the conditions when you first arrived here. We hear the term urban sprawl, but what exactly does that term mean and how has it affected the gardens in Perth? Uh, as I said earlier, Daniel, uh, the quarter acre block was uh, very much in its existence when I first came in 94. And now we're starting to see those spaces broken down into smaller spaces and therefore the gardens are smaller. So as urban sprawl is starting to move out from the centre of Perth and moving, as we're seeing, up to places like Joondalup and further up to Queen's Rocks and further up north, those gardens are getting smaller and smaller. We're seeing devastation with some of the mature trees that perhaps were there now are being removed for development. And as we go towards the south, uh, what used to be sleepy towns of Mandra are now becoming secondary cities to Perth and we'll go further still down to places like Bunbury. And that means we're cutting through our landscape, removing existing environments which we have, removing trees obviously, affecting the water tables, the use of water in those particular areas, changing in soils. And we're now seeing urban sprawl really spreading through, which you know is always going to, going to happen in many cases, but we just need to make sure that we understand our urban, our urban greening and the maintenance of green spaces uh, for people to live in. So we, it just doesn't become this concrete city and, and we get this massive heat island effect. What was landscaping like in 1994 when you first arrived and what were the customers' perceptions of a landscaper? <laughs> I think they use the term still today, cowboy, <laughs> a cowboy on a ute. Um, and I th look, I think because Perth traditionally and Western Australia traditionally has been based on a couple of major economies and one is mining and the second one is agriculture, um, those uh, brought wealth into the state and uh, meant that a lot of uh, workforce tended to move into those particular areas and landscaping wasn't really top of the list. And when, of course, coming from England, where traditionally horticulture is one of the top leisure activities and training and schools and education and colleges to come here and find uh, very uh, small TAFEs, uh, uh, very few students attending to do these types of courses. Horticulture was fairly small. So landscaping, therefore, didn't have any guts to it. And uh, But that's changed. That has changed. And that's the good good news now. The public of Perth, the people, the pop population of Perth now understand that a garden is part of the home. And as outdoor living becomes more and more vital a part of our living experience, the landscape scene has therefore changed. So what we saw back in those early 90s has changed into more of a profession. And instead of employing someone who perhaps worked off the back of a ute, uh, they now actually want to employ someone who understands things like design. I remember when I came uh, from London and talked about setting up a landscape design business, people sort of looked at me uh, as if I was mad because you'd only really pay, pay for a plumber or an electrician to come to your home, but you wouldn't pay for a garden designer to come in. And as you say, that's actually a kind of a part of the home, the landscape, isn't it? And it plays a huge role in property prices, let alone just the well-being of your family. Uh, absolutely. And I think we, can, we, we have to thank the media for uh, really 
aspiring those who live in homes to create that outdoor living space. Programs like Better Homes and Gardens have done that. And of course, Gardening Australia has made us much more aware of the planet and the green, the green in our lives. Um, but if we go back to people like Don Burke, I remember when I first came, Don Burke used to be on a Friday night and uh, out, out the bat with Don and all those things was that sort of early inspiration. But programs like Better Homes and Gardens has got a long way uh, to show people the opportunities they have in, in creating more of their home outside, bringing the outside in and the inside out. Uh, but most importantly, it actually puts value on your property, street curb appearance, uh, all those things are important, and now people understand that very clearly. And since COVID, more importantly, Daniel, we've seen that the green space is actually has a huge impact on us in terms of our mental health. Oh, absolutely. In lockdown here, I think a lot of people would actually be really quite lost without their walks around in parks and gardens and just even their own landscape gardens at home. I think nature, whether it's in your garden or in the park, is just huge. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So can you explain to me, like, what does a professional landscaper look like in 2020 when compared to <laughs> someone who's not quite as professional? It's funny you ask that question. Um, I was at a uh, Landscape Association board meeting last night and we were, we're, we're talking about the profession and, and raising the bar and raising the standards. And it's funny that one of the items we're talking about is having a master landscapers program. And we were just talking as a generally about how that might work, how we might have this accreditation, this endorsed program. And I actually put top of the list customer service. The change now is that to be a professional landscaper for the future is to have those people skills, to understand how your business works, to understand how a network works, and also understand about contract management, understand about what's right, what's wrong, understand about looking after the environment, the space that you're working in. You know, they're not going to rock up. Uh, on the back end of a ute uh, in a pair, pair, pair of Ugg boots and a, a T-shirt with I love sex on it anymore. You know, we've got <laughs> someone out there now who, who, who actually looks professional going out into the industry. You've got to remember too, Daniel, that some of those landscapers who work out there earn some very big bickies or they get some very good contracts. And that means the consumer is actually investing a large amount of money mm. into that individual or business to deliver something for them. Um, so there is a higher expectation now out there in the pub public arena uh, to have people who are experienced, qualified, uh, and do have proper contracts when they're out there working. Can you tell me a little bit more about what do you mean when you say professional contracts? Well, you'd be surprised to learn that, Daniel, part of my work is actually speaking to, to members of the public who have conflict with perhaps a landscaper they've engaged and uh, there's an issue with the work that they've done. It's not, it's substandard and they want to know where they can go to for advice in getting that work uh, rectified. And uh, the first question I will always ask, Daniel, is uh, did you have a formal contract with your landscaper? And a lot of the time they haven't. It's been emails, it's been something written uh, on a piece of paper rather than a formal signed contract which clearly stipulates the work that's going to be done, the work, the scope of works. Um, if work uh, needs rectifying uh, clauses within it, timeframes, payment, payments, uh, you'll be surprised, Daniel, too, that uh, too often landscapers think they're entitled to X amount of money when they start a job where, in fact, they're only allowed Y amount of money. So we're going to need to, through contract, good contract management, engage the public in understanding exactly uh, when they engage someone 
from the landscape industry? What are the expectations in terms of con- contractual agreements? And of course, while we still do have those out there doing cash work, perhaps uh, paying staff for cash, etc., cetera, uh, we don't have a level playing field. So contract management will go a long way by hopefully enforcing those people who engage people from the landscape industry to actually work with professional landscapers who have proper contracts in place. And therefore, there is some form of warranty on that landscape. Um, you'd be surprised, Daniel, how many times that a bit of paving does crack after a few months because of settling. Uh, what, 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 where does the customer go? Does, is there any full fallback? So it's, that's where I'm going with that contract. It's an important part of a professional landscaper of the future and insurance, of course, is too. Just a little bit of risk mitigation can go so far. <laughs> it can do, can do indeed. We touched briefly on this before, but I'd like to go into a little bit more depth about what sort of skills and knowledge, in your opinion, is absolutely essential for a professional landscaper in 2020 to have? 2020, they must have passion. They must have passion more than anything else, because if they've got passion and they're committed, uh, then they will see the whole thing through. And that's not just their individual landscape works they're doing, but their business as well. So they've got to be very business minded. They've got to be savvy. They've got to be innovative. I think it's so critical in this day and age that you don't get caught up by borrowing landscapes, as I call it, where you look at perhaps something that's done on TV or read in a magazine or looked online and seen, and just trying to copy that. Someone who's a good landscaper and one for the future is someone who thinks outside the box, has very good plant knowledge as well. We see very few landscapers who have that ability to group and select plants. And in many cases, that's not their fault because we have a huge problem here in Perth of wider varieties of plants available or available plants to the landscaper. We have a good selection, but having those extra, extra things that really pull a landscape together, which people would not expect to see, is often limited. And uh, there are issues here with getting plants. But more more than anything, as I said to you right from the beginning, is having that training. They should have some formal training. Uh, The TAFEs here offer some very good certificates and then diplomas. So they should have a very good grounding in understanding the environment from soil, uh, understanding how plants grow, and then the construction phase as well. And as we move forward, and many businesses outgrow themselves very quickly from being a maintenance business to then doing a little bit of landscaping, uh, they then should have some very good project management skills because they know in this day and age, the days of employing people full-time have gone by the wayside. In many cases, people are on contract. So you need to have a good understanding of contract management and being a good uh, leader of a team. So those are some of the skills that I always think. But right from the start, they've got to have that enthusiasm and wanting wanting to work outside. Absolutely. You mentioned TAFE as one of the places that landscapers can acquire a bit of knowledge, but are there any other places that we can learn? Look, I think online, obviously, there's a lot of information floating around online, but I don't think you you can beat face-to-face. I think that's really, really important. Um, Of course, universities run various courses, but it's it's that starting that that entry level, Daniel. I mean, I'm even talking to high schools uh, uh, here in Perth, where they're starting at a level two Hort, um, and that's the grassroots level. So it's beginning there and making their way up. And then if you do belong to associations like LIOA, the Landscape Industry Association here in WA, uh, we then provide ongoing professional development. So it's almost a journey. You start at your TAFE or you start at school and a cert two, you then decide to go into landscaping perhaps as a profession. You can go to TAFE and do various courses. Always along the line, Daniel, building up that plant knowledge, building up your network. And then you could perhaps join a professional association like ours. And then you can go on to that next level of networking at a high level, but also still getting some of that professional development. 
Absolutely. So we've touched on a couple of benefits of being a member of an association there. We kind of talked about a bit of the community and the networking as well as sort of upskilling yourself. But are there any other benefits for a professional landscaper to join an association? Well, without doubt, we we saw this when uh, COVID came is efficacy. It's part of the work that I I do here, uh, working with the state government, uh, the Buildings Commission, I work very closely with. And as I uh, suggested earlier, Daniel, when we were talking about accreditation and lifting the standards within our industry with landscapers and the NAP and then becoming certified or accredited, that advocacy work is critical. And I've I'm constantly working with the uh, Minister uh, for Commerce and discussing openly how we can take the industry forward uh, in terms of some form of certification accreditation. So advocacy are on their, in the, on their behalf. As you said, it's critical, those engagements and net, networking and meeting people. It'd be surprising that you might go to a function, meet a, another landscaper. He may suggest you use a different supplier or a different product. And before you know it, you've saved probably your membership money in those few seconds of meeting that person. But I, was, I think more than anything, Daniel, that when people ask about joining... They want that profession. They want to be acknowledged that what they're doing, they do well. Many landscapers live a lonely life <laughs> when they work on their own. And I've experienced that myself when I first started out. You know, you go out on your own day in, day out, and you wonder actually, A, are you doing a good job? Or B, you know, do you want to continue doing what, what you're doing? So it can be very soul-destroying. So by belonging to an association, you become part of a community. You become part of that sounding board for your own business. And so I use the word professionalism comes into place. And many of our members, of course, want that logo. They want that endorsement. Uh, So that's a key part of our work. And as I said to you, the Master Landscapers program is going to be our next real push forward to show our members and show the public that out there, we do have a professional body. So there's a lot of benefits of being a landscaper, being a part of an industry association. But what are the benefits of a customer choosing a member? Well, I think it's it's a bit like a warranty, isn't it? You you would hope that all our members, uh, as an example, when members join Liawa, there are two critical things that we, or three, I should say, that are critical in joining. First of all, obviously, they need an ABN number, but I like to know they've got insurance cover. And thirdly, I do like to know that they've got a contract in place that they use for any works that they do, any scope of works or any projects that they carry out. So it's almost that we have a check already on them. In, in a nice way. And I meet many who want to join who don't have one or two of those areas. And immediately, they're straight on to me. We're understanding that they need to do those things. We have some people who fall into our industry who haven't been to TAFE. So I see us as a, an important part of capturing those people and showing them the right career pathway or the right, the right way from a business pathway to go forward. So that's the critical thing at that early stage is when we meet them, we ensure they have those two or three things in place to go forward. So when a customer or a member of the public employ a member of the Liawa, uh, someone who is a member, they know straight away that they've got the critical things in place to be uh, engaged to do work for them. Does Liawa have a website and what can prospective customers and members learn from visiting that website? Yeah, we do. Um, It was something we put in place uh, about 12 months ago. We revisited our existing website and I wanted to make it certainly Uh, something that was very customer focused. So the members of the public can go into Liawa, find a landscaper, find a professional, find a supplier too. So we've got a good database there for the public to go in and find a member in their area. And Matt, I'd like to know some of your proudest achievements since taking over the association in 2018. (laughs) Um, I think think 
coming from the UK, I was very lucky to be involved with the British Association of Landscape Industries, Bali. And I always knew that they were almost my benchmark uh, of where I thought Liawa could get to. Um, I think Liawa is now on a very good pathway. Its journey has got a, still a long way to go. Its membership has increased by nearly 15 to 20% in the first few years. Our sponsorship has grown, of course, uh, with that. It comes hand in hand. Um, but I think more than anything is that there's a belief. There's a belief among the members. There's a belief amongst those who are non-members who I meet that we need an industry. We need a body that is going to be the force going forward, the peak body. And I feel proud to think that I initiated that back in 2018. Of course, the association goes back to 1979. And uh, of course, some great work has been done uh, in, in those periods. But it was almost I had to come back in and, and, and show them the new, the, new, the new light, the new journey. And I feel very, very proud that they've come on board. Last night, we had eight board members sitting around a table. Nearly uh, 18, 19 months ago, there were only two or three. Um, so you can see quickly how it's all changed. I think that's awesome. I know that Ben really speaks so highly of everything that Liao has been doing lately. And I think that's just so great because, yeah, professionalism in the industry is just huge. I mean, especially if you're part of a membership of a group, you really want that group to be really shining. Well, if you're going to achieve accreditation, if you're going to achieve some form of endorsement from the public too who recognize you, you've got to be in numbers. And the way we're developing, the way we're shaping things, the way we are actually taking a bit of time on certain areas, like the master landscape, we're not just running at it and thinking we can just do this overnight. We're really looking at it closely. I think it's going to give the solid foundations uh, well well beyond my lifetime. And, and hopefully 50, 100 years time, someone will remember that, you know, uh, there was a team behind it that really drove it and uh, my name will be there somewhere in the mix. Yeah, absolutely. So what does your vision look like for 2020 and beyond? What does the future hold for Liawa? Um, our, our main focus again is to continue to get to at the grassroots level for those landscapers who are looking for support, who are looking for someone to align with and give them support, technical advice. So we're certainly reaching out to those players for our own existing members uh, we want to increase the uh, the quality of our events. That's always critical. We've got, for example, in middle of November, our first trade evening, an opportunity for our sponsors to meet face-to-face with our members. But more importantly, uh, for our members, again, to be engaged with those who are supporting the industry with new advances in areas like irrigation, turf. Um, we've got to keep our members up to date. So making sure the events we put on aren't just a social event, but also at the same time, uh, giving some form of educational value uh, so that they feel they're constantly getting something from their membership. Uh, and we are also going to be developing our new magazine. We produce a weekly, uh, almost like a little bulletin, e-news, Landscape Weekly, which is a sort of a just pepping everyone up each Thursday morning. It comes out just to let them know what's, what we're up to, what's coming up. We'll be producing a quarterly magazine, which will be much more detailed and giving information internationally. I want to make sure that we are uh, abreast with some of the movements landscape-wise internationally and also from some of our state neighbours, what's happening across Australia. So the magazine is, once again, to be innovative and educational, and that will be our next big push going forward into 2021. That sounds awesome. So what are some of the cultural and technological advances that are changing the whole industry and associations from how they used to be back in the day? Oh, I think, I think COVID suddenly 
we all understood about Zoom a lot better <laughs> and uh, and the ability to actually create a, an event where we can put 100 to 200 people uh, all together than having to hire a facility and uh, try and get everyone to join or come from different places. We have, and particularly Western Australia is a large state. So we have this ability now to put things on where people can join and not feel they're being pulled away from their working day life. I think just as importantly, we're seeing sort of more more innovation in terms of products that people are starting to reach out and try and use again. So yeah, I, I think more than anything, definitely that use of the Zoom and things things like that being really, really positive. Mm, absolutely. And I think podcasts are pretty cool too. <laughs> Yes, podcasts are cool. Shameless plug. <laughs> podcasts are cool. Yeah, look, um, I think the ability to play a podcast in a car when people are to- uh, often short of time, I think is a great, great, great stuff. Well, uh, it's totally different to a radio program too because a podcast is kind of a micro medium where people can really search for what they're really interested in, whereas maybe back in the day you just have radio where you just, you sort of, you're only able to pick up what people were sending out. Yeah, it's almost you're now able to edit what you want to really listen to, which in many ways is, I think, we've become very stereotyped, whereas before you might listen to something that you weren't aware, you know, you might be listening to a particular radio show waiting for the gardening show to come on and there's an advert or there's a pre-story before and you suddenly oh, that's interesting, which you wouldn't normally listen to. So we just got to make sure we don't just go down the same path of what we want to listen to. But uh, no, it is brilliant. It means that where potentially you haven't been able to listen to a, an edition of one of your podcasts, you've got that op- option to listen to it late in the evening outside work hours. Oh, that's huge, isn't it? Mm. So is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners about before we wrap this episode up? <laughs> oh, look, I think uh, we're very, very lucky through COVID in many ways that the horticultural and the nursery industry have benefited. And I hate to use that word benefit benefited because a number of people have lost jobs. Industries have gone. We've seen that particularly in event management and also uh, in hospitality. Thankfully, here in Western Australia, we've been blessed. Uh, we've dodged the biggest bullet ever. But in many ways, what it has done is it's shown the people of Western Australia that uh, the garden is part of their lives. Plants are part of their lives. We're seeing people spending vast amounts of money on indoor plants. We're seeing people spending vast amounts of money on greening uh, the externals or around their properties. Um, We're seeing real value going back into the industry. And we're actually seeing, maybe for the better or the worse, people actually having a go themselves, DIYing landscapes, which for the industry can be a worry because often that might mean some of the smaller landscapers don't get work. But at the same time, when mistakes happen, then landscapers do then get brought in to resolve those issues. But more importantly, horticulture has been the winner for the industry uh, here in Western Australia, one of the winning industries, without a doubt. And uh, when you see uh, some of our big suppliers, some of our big retailers like Bunnings clearing uh, like they did in April, vegetable seedlings in less than 25 to 30 minutes, which normally would take four or five days. There was just a mass hysteria of plant buying and people wanting to buy plants. Now, a lot of them had no idea, I think, what they were buying, Daniel. Some of them were planting things which were totally inappropriate, like tomatoes <laughs> in the middle of winter. Oh, but no, that okay. is all part of horticulture. It's all part of the learning of planting that seed, watching it grow, watching it flower, maybe watching it die. That's how you get green fingers. And that's what I think uh, is the future. And people are green is good and green will continue to be good uh, in our lives. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on, Matt. What an incredible episode. Yeah, great stuff, Daniel. And hopefully speak again. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you've learned a lot about being a professional landscaper as opposed to being an ordinary one. 
Joining an industry association is a great place to start. And if you're in WA, I reckon Liawa seems like a pretty exciting one to join. Check out the show notes for a bunch of links showing you where to go next. There's a little bit of an element of common sense here as well. It's quite hard to look like a professional if you've got rips and tears all over your uniform or you're lacking some of those logos on the uniform and on the vehicles. Get educated so you actually know what you're supposed to be doing and get in the practice of providing excellent customer service so that you can hopefully get some of those referrals. Learn about branding and marketing, including making yourself a top-notch website with some excellent SEO because that's going to help you land more customers as well. <laughs>